This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Jason and I are on a cargo plane full of rubber dog (laughs) out of Hong Kong. (laughs) Jeez, I cracked myself up. (laughs) Welcome back, Shirley fans. Jason, Shirley fans are the top fans. They're the best of the best, and this episode will make them better. (laughs) Guys, have we got an episode for you today? We have the breakout movie for multiple actors, the breakout movie for a pair of producers that are arguably the biggest blockbuster producers of all times that ultimately ends in a fiery crash when a naked rehab doctor is found dead of a drug overdose in Don Simpson's pool house. Is this going to be an exciting episode or what? I can't wait to hear that story because I have not. <laughs> come across that in my research okay d i should talk about how we we sorry sorry we yeah should talk about (laughs) how this episode has been postponed three times three times because this movie was supposed to come out in 2020 and then covid and then 2021 and still covid and now finally week from today when you guys are listening to this we will be watching top gun maverick the long-awaited sequel to top gun it's going to be fantastic the reviews are already spectacular yes they're calling it the movie of the year really yes wow best picture of the year is what i've seen so guys, next week we are going to give you our take. We're gonna we are previewing this movie for you. We are going to see it before it is released to the general public, and we will tell you: Are the critics right or are they wrong? I think we're gonna love it either way, probably. Probably so. All right. Hey, I will tell you this, people: yeah. If you're listening to this podcast today, this is all Top Gun 1986. Yeah. Okay. So there's no spoilers in this episode. Now next week when we talk about Top Gun Maverick, we're gonna give you a preview. We're gonna give you kind of the history. Yeah. And then we'll tell you at certain point that this is the spoiler zone okay right you're entering the uh highway to the spoiler zone okay there you go right <laughs> so come back next week listen to us and we'll give you plenty of room to hit the eject button and then you can see it on your own okay okay so let us start with the amazing pairing of two of the most iconic producers <clears throat> of the 80s and 90s I can't wait to hear your Simpson Bruckheimer stuff here. Okay, so Jerry Bruckheimer was Mr. Outside, and Don Simpson was Mr. Inside. Okay. They were both born about the same time, different places. Jerry Bruckheimer came up in uh, Detroit. Don Simpson was born in Seattle, ended up being raised in Juneau, Alaska. And knowing what you know about his life, you will be surprised to find out that he considered himself a straight-A Bible student. His parents were devout Baptists. He went to church four to five times per week week. Knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but it didn't stick, I guess. <laughs> Don Simpson? Don Simpson. Mr. Cocaine and Hookers? <laughs> Mr. Cocaine and Hookers. <laughs> so Don Simpson, raised in Alaska under this straight-laced conservative household, ultimately leaves and becomes a ski instructor in Utah. Then he moves on to San Francisco, where he gets into theatrical advertising and does PR for the first International Erotic Film Festival. All right. Can see that too, knowing what we know about him. And ultimately, he ends up in L.A. marketing for the Warner Brothers exploitation films, including Woodstock, 
the documentary on Woodstock. Okay. Uh, you know, like Martin Scorsese and the other guys when they were nobodies at that time. Right. And a movie you might have heard of called A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, for sure. Now, Bruckheimer, let's just, just take a pause just for a second. Let's, let me throw this out here. Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, The Rock, Crimson Tide, Con Air, Armageddon, Enemy of the State, Black Hawk Down, Bad Boys franchise, Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, National Treasure 1 and 2, the CSI series, all of them, Cold Case, The Amazing Race, all from Jerry Bruckheimer. He's got the golden touch. In high school, he was a stamp collector. (laughs) (laughs) He liked photography and stamps. He went to school, got a psychology major from the University of Arizona. He also went to work for an advertising agency that did commercials for Pontiac GTO and Pepsi. And he decided, hey, I'm going to go out to Hollywood, start working with some directors. One of the guys he worked with was Dick Richards, who did Tootsie and uh, Heat. Yeah. Hadn't done much at that point. But in 1973, some important events happened. Number one, he meets Don Simpson. Okay. Number two, Don Simpson gets a job at Paramount. And then number three, a experienced pilot named Peter Pettigrew was released from active duty as yeah. a naval pilot. All of these things happened in 1973. 1973. Yes. Even though they met back in 73, they didn't start working together until later. Don Simpson gets a job at Paramount. He co-writes a movie with Paul Bartel, who had done Death Race 2000. Yeah. You know what the movie is that they co-wrote? No. Cannonball. Really? Not not Cannonball Run, but the original Cannonball with... Keith Carradine or whatever his name is. Really? Really? 75, they wrote that. By 77, Don Simpson is the VP of production. By 1981, he is president of Paramount. And in 1982, he gets fired because he is passed out on drugs in the middle of a meeting. (laughs) I read that too. (laughs) But Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Kessenberg know that he's a talented guy. He's just obviously struggling with a drug issue. Yes. Before he became known as Mr. Inside, he was known as Don, I've got some good blow for you upstairs, Simpson. (laughs) So because Eisner and Katzenberg are really fond of him, really think he's got some talent, he just can't lead this company, they say, hey, we want you to stay on as a producer, and they give him the movie Flashdance. And that is when he goes and finds his friend Jerry Bruckheimer and says, can you help me out with this? Flashdance was one of the first times you took great imagery and paired it up with the MTV rock and roll music video type of feel. They hit it big with Flashdance. Right, so that was really the first big hit for both of them. And in 1984, they come out with Beverly Hills Cop. By the way, before we move on, yeah. just please know, charismatic people, charismatic characters, yep. interesting stories, great soundtracks. Rock and roll, high energy, and action is almost what Don Simpson's life was. Yeah, it's true. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's as though he he could pick that out. He wanted to live that life, and he wanted to make those movies. At the same time they're making these movies, Don Simpson goes to the dentist. He picks up a magazine in the dentist's office. Are you kidding me? And he flips to this article that's written by Elad Yune that's about the top... What was that guy's name again? Elad Yune. Okay. And it's about the Top Gun Flight School in Miramar, California. Before he even goes in to have his teeth worked on, he gets the phone and calls the guy who wrote the article and says, this is awesome. I want to do this as a movie. Can I buy it from you? Wow. 
The guy seems interested. He goes to Katzenberg and Eisner and says, hey, this is going to be like Star Wars here on Earth. Will you let me do this movie? And they give him like three or $400,000 to buy the script and to hire the writers. Incredible. He's fascinated by the call names of these guys. You've got Hollywood. You've got radio. You've got Rat and all kinds Viper of- and all these guys. Yeah. He's also fascinated by like the reflection in the helmets and just the imagery of what look like space fighters here in the blue skies of the world. Star Wars on Earth. How can you go wrong with that? So ultimately, how you can go wrong is they release a television series about aviators from the 1950s that totally tanks. And the guys at Paramount freak out and they put the script in turnaround. So at this point, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson go to Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg and they're begging them not to put the script in turnaround. Don Simpson literally gets down on his hands and knees and begs. And if you know Don Simpson, that's pretty impressive, right? Yeah. They were impressed and they decided to let him keep it going and they gave them $14 million to shoot it. See, okay. This is crazy because I did hear that they were impressed by their enthusiasm. Like, if these guys believe in this project that much, we've got to let them do this. So the guys that they hired to write this movie were Jack Epps and Jim Cash. And the impression that I got were that these guys were really on fire at the time. And I looked and Jack Epps has like some TV writing credits and Jim Cash has no writing credits before Top Gun. So I don't know how it is that these two guys were the guys that they wanted to use. You got any insight on that? I was just going to say, Bruckheimer, I saw his interview and he said they felt like Cash and Epps were the best writers in the business at that moment. Uh And for them not to have any credits, I was like, wow, that's a really curious thing to say. But it turns out that Cash and Epps had written these four or five or six screenplays. Yeah. They just couldn't get anything made, but their screenplays were really good. They were hot to have them write, and they were hot to have something made. Yes, and I got to throw in a quick plug in for our guys over at the Film By podcast. Okay. So Brad and Jeff, Film By podcast. Hey, Jeff. They focus on a movie in 1986, um, about every two or three weeks. Anyway, Mm -hmm. they actually invited me. I'm coming over there. I'm going to do an episode on Legal Eagles. I was watching Legal Eagles the other day. Right there, right after Robert Redford, it's like a screenplay by Cash and Epps. There you go. So Jim Cash was a three-time college dropout who drops back into college at Michigan State University, gets his bachelor's degree in English, and then he goes and gets a master's degree in television and radio, and he becomes a professor. He's teaching over in Michigan. Okay. And as it turns out, He never goes to California, like his entire life. He didn't go over there. A few years after he starts teaching, he has a young student named Jack Epps Jr. who does go out to California, and I'm guessing he gets out there and he's like, hey... Professor Jim. <laughs> right. Hey, Professor Cash. Um, I'm out here. You've got great writing abilities. Why don't we work together on these scripts? They would talk to each other on the phone for hours and hours. Epps was the guy who was there in Hollywood doing all of the deals. And just Jim stayed over in Michigan and had a happy, quiet little life as he wrote these amazing screenplays. I heard Jack Epps talk about when they they offered him Top Gun. He said he wanted to ride it because he was a private pilot and he was hoping to get a jet ride. 
So they've got the writers, they've got the budget. Now we got to have a director, and they can't find anybody who they feel comfortable doing the aerial footage. Like the most recent well-done aerial footage they can find is like Howard Hawks from like back in the fifties and sixties. I yeah. mean, it was, it's nothing's good has been done in years, and so they're like, okay, well, let's just start looking at directors. And one of the portfolios that they look at is from this guy named Tony Scott. Tony Scott is the younger brother of Ridley Scott. Yeah. Worked together with him at the company that they had together that we talked about in our Alien episode that did advertisements before they started making movies. That's right. I also have in my notes that they went to John Carpenter and David Cronenberg to see if they wanted to direct Top Gun. Okay. Here's the interesting thing. Just a little interesting coincidence. We're about to cover a movie by John Carpenter, Ridley Scott, and today is Tony Scott. Yeah. So Tony had only done one movie and it was The Hunger. And we've talked about vampire movies, you and I, quite a bit. I love vampire movies. And one of the movies that I said, hey, here's one. I've never seen this. Have you seen it? It was The Hunger. Yeah. How'd you feel about The Hunger? That movie sucks. (laughs) So incredibly boring. Yeah. You are not alone in your assessment (laughs) of that movie. Everybody thought The Hunger sucked. And Tony Scott couldn't get a job in Hollywood for four years. But he was still doing advertising. And one of the things that he was doing advertising for was the Saab car. S-A-A-B, Saab car. Right. His commercial involved the Saab in a sort of race with a contemporary fighter jet. I saw this commercial, and it's cool looking. Oh, it's way cool. I remember the commercial from when I was a kid. As it turned out, it was the best aerial footage they could find of anybody. And so they said, hey, Tony, how about you come direct this movie for us? Now, his idea initially was to have it be like Apocalypse Now on the sea. And they're like, (laughs) no, that's not it. And it took a lot of back and forth, a lot of back and forth. And finally, he just wakes up one morning and he's like, okay, I think I got it now. It's got to be a rock video in the sky. And he called and he says, how about rock video in the sky? And Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson are like, yes, that's it. You nailed it. You figured it out. (laughs) That's it. And so they tag him to direct the movie. He was fired three times during this movie. I know. Fired three times. The first time is for filming that opening sequence in slow motion. Yes. He's like, he's like, I filmed several sequences. I kind of wanted slow motion. I knew they didn't, but I wanted a slow motion bit. So I filmed like five reels and one of them was slow motion. And the camera guys sent my slow motion to them and they fired me. <laughs> Fortunately, they rehired me within 24 hours. He yes. goes, and then I decided to make Kelly McGillis look like a whore. <laughs> and they said, you're fired. I know. It's like, okay, well, it's got to be for sure this time. And they rehired him again, toned down how slutty she looked. Right. And the third time he got fired was because he was shooting scenes with the guys with their visors down. The actors. Yes, the actors. And they hired the actors because of their face. Yes. And so it was not... And he said, once again, I had shot multiple reels with the mask up. I shot one reel with the mask down. And of course, the cameramen send in the one with the mask down. I got fired again. I think the cameramen were against me on this. <laughs> now, one of the things I think is vitally important to this project yeah. is that Paramount got the U.S. Navy on board. That's a huge key. For instance, you go watch Iron Eagle mm-hmm. about a teenager who steals a jet away from the Navy. Oh, my. The Navy's like, oh, no. bull crap. We're not signing on board. You no way. 
Right. We're not putting our name on this. Right. Instead, they work in collaboration with the Navy, and all of a sudden you get access to real jets, you get access to real flying, you get a top gun and its pilots. Now, you think about the budget on this movie of $14 million. I think it ended up being close to 16 but still, a $16 million movie that you've got real live F-14 footage I mean, exploding planes in the sky. It's amazing uh-huh. that it was done for this budget. But the deal was with the Navy, when they got them to buy in, the Navy didn't charge them for anything except fuel. But if you get all of those shots, plus if the if the Navy was doing aerial work anyway, they could film it and it was nothing. It was no cost to the Navy. And so you get this amazing footage for pennies. Yes, it's incredible. In fact, the Navy wanted a technical advisor Mm -hmm. on the set at all times, make sure these guys do it right. But they couldn't have anybody in active service. Mm -hmm. They'd been burned during the movie The Final Countdown. Yep. And the, the CEO of the base got in trouble for giving access to maybe some like top secret stuff on accident and it was just a bad deal and so they needed to hire a non-active duty technical advisor right so when tony had gotten the job he he thought okay i'm gonna go do some research he goes down to miramar to do research at the top gun facility talk to the top gun pilots this is where he meets pete pettigrew who i mentioned earlier now pete was a former top gun aviator ultimately becomes a consultant on the film after tony spends several days hanging out talking and drinking together (laughs) let me give a little backstory on pete pettigrew because i had to go look okay yeah yeah so he goes to stanford he's an all-american in both swimming and water polo he was on the 1963 national championship water polo team he graduates stanford in 1964 and of course immediately goes into the navy enters flight training in november of 64 and by june of 66 he is given his naval aviator status he is highly decorated he flew in in over 375 combat missions and in 1970 he is picked to join the fledgling navy fighter weapons school as an instructor can you give me a little a snippet on this weapons school on march 3rd 1969 the united states navy established an elite school for the top one percent of its pilots Its purpose was to teach the lost art of aerial combat and to ensure that the handful of men who graduated were the best fighter pilots in the world. They succeeded. Today, the Navy calls it Fighter Weapons School. The Flyers call it Top Gun. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So, Pete Pettigrew came in in 1970 when it's brand new Yep. and is an instructor there until January of 72. In May of 72, he and his wingman engage four North Vietnamese MiGs over Vietnam. He takes out one. His leader takes out the other one and the other two go away. They bug out. They bug out. They bug out. Not one enemy shot is fired. Wow. So Pete Pettigrew, one of the original instructors there, is still over there in the 80s whenever Tony Scott comes over. You know what his call sign is, by the way? I do. Viper. It's the reason that Tom Skerritt's character is named Viper. And it's also the reason why Pete Mitchell, Maverick's character, is named Pete instead of Evan. Exactly. So right before he started working, he was still obviously there. He's still in the reserves. He's still helping out and doing stuff. He was also competing in Ironman triathlons before it was even really a thing over in Honolulu. And he has a part in the movie. Yeah, he does. So when Kelly McGillis 
you know, has to leave to go meet with her date. He's the date. He's the older guy. He's the old man. Like, <laughs> I'm watching this movie. I'm like, why is she with that old dude? And then I just started thinking, I'm like, he was in his mid-40s at that time. <laughs> that makes me an old dude at this point. He's in his mid-40s. He's competing in triathlons. He's a awesome super pilot, smart guy. And he's the uh, he's the old man. 2014, he was a part of a swim relay group that 70-plus... Sw- year old guys all of them who swam across the catalina channel gosh he is a badass among badasses he really is and i see why they named viper after him he is the elite and the elite he's the best of the best i did hear rick rosovich talk about when you hang out with these top gun pilots Mm -hmm. he said he's talking to guys they're the best fighter pilots in the world and the guy said well yeah i'm a a great fighter pilot but i'm also a concert pianist yeah oh i'm also studying i've got my doctorate in philosophy (laughs) He's like, these guys are just extra, super talented people. Yep. And probably they go hand in hand, ultra competitive. Mega competitive. An important note, an unrealistic part of this movie is the Top Gun trophy. Right. And Pete Pettigrew said, if there had been an actual trophy, (laughs) no one would have survived the Top Gun school because they would have all killed each other trying to get it. That's how competitive they are. That's awesome. So a couple of the other guys that were involved, you had Scott Altman, whose call sign was Scooter. Okay. Now, Scott Altman was the guy who you see given the bird to the MiG at the beginning of the movie. Okay. And buzzing the tower was... 100% 100% forbidden. Yeah. Like, it did not happen. Like, if you did that in real life, hand in your wings, you're done. You're never going to get it again. But they had to have it for the movie. And so he's like, well, guess we have to have it for the movie. And so he is the first guy to actually buzz the tower. He ended up doing it nine times. But the first time, they didn't know it was coming. That is awesome. He actually got in trouble. And it wasn't that the guy just spilled his coffee. They blew the windows out of the office. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Hey, I did hear that uh, Michael Ironside, the guy who plays Jester, said that he was in a hangar. He's like, I was in the hangar. I was like upstairs in the hangar. Because mm-hmm. those things aren't very tall. And I saw that Tomcat below me. Yeah. And he's like, it's the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. And in fact, by the time he had done it several times, people were gathering in the streets going, what the F is going on here? They thought that some fighter pilot had gone crazy and was like, this is my last flight. And I'm going to go out in a ball of fire. So that was Scott Scooter Altman, who would go on after the movie to become a NASA astronaut. (laughs) The guy who buzzed the tower, the guy who had them watch the birdie, became... You know, the finger. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, just does that. Yes, I know the finger. He became an astronaut at the NASA program and went to space. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. (laughs) Okay, one other pilot that I have to talk about is Art Scholl. Yeah, we definitely need to talk about him. So Art Scholl was a guy who had educated himself as a pilot, got his master's in aviation, was a teacher, had taught aviation for 18 years, felt like he was stagnating, and said, after 18 years of teaching, I think I'm going to go be a stunt pilot. Yeah. And then he did it for the next 30 years. Like every major aviation film that you've seen, 
Art Scholl was almost certainly a part of it. He did air shows, he did movies, he did television commercials, over 200 films, documentaries, and TV commercials just for Art Scholl. So the original script had a flat spin in it that they wanted to get footage for. Right. And Art Scholl was like, no problem, I'll go back up. He had been shooting all day long, and it, of course, was one of those like, you know, you don't really need to go do this. He's like, no, I'm good, I'm gonna do this, I'll get it, we'll be done. So he goes up over the Pacific Ocean, goes into his flat spin, and then they hear him say, I have a problem. And then he says, I have a big problem. And that's the last they ever hear of him. They never recovered his plane or his body. Yeah. So this movie was dedicated to his memory because he lost his life in filming it. I heard that he was filming like second unit stuff. Oh, yeah. Like stuff to be projected behind Tom Cruise while he's, oh, yeah, could have you been. know, in the in the fake cockpit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just just junk stuff not even screen worthy stuff yeah that's a bummer okay let's flip back to Jack Epps for just a second okay okay we talked about how he was interested in this because he was a commercial pilot mm -hmm. and he was hoping to get a jet ride out of it right they brought him down to San Diego and he started hanging out with Navy pilots now I called you the other day we were in I was in Walmart and I'm like okay I've got this thing figured out. Okay. So one of the things that he found out when he was hanging out with these pilots is that they have a language all their own. Right, right. So he's sitting at the bar with these guys, mm -hmm. and they're talking about, you know, ACM, and, you know, I got the Rio in the back, and he's like, I don't even know what these words mean, but yeah. they do, yeah. and they all speak the same language. And he said it was a conscious decision. Do we try and, like, explain this to the audience, or do they just put the pedal down and hope that the audience can keep up? Just drop him in the middle of it. Just drop him in the middle of it. And so that's why you have Rio and not once do they ever say radio intelligence officer. Right. You're just expected to keep up. Yeah. So he gets his jet flight. Okay. He gets in there. Yeah. And he realizes when there's you start pulling four or five Gs, <laughs> he's like, you know, yeah, it beats you to death. Yeah. He's and he started to realize this is a super physical job. He goes, This is about aerial combat maneuvers, but really what it's about is sports. He said, This is the greatest sporting event I've ever been a part of. At that moment, he decided all these guys are going to be stud athletes. You have to have the trophy in order for it to be a sports movie, which is why they took that little deviation. You know, when they were talking to Pete Pettigrew, that you know, all of his Navy guys are like, Pettigrew, what, what in the world? They've got a Navy trophy. What, what yeah. are you, crazy? Right. He's like, guys... I'm just trying to keep them from making it a musical at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, they had A story and the B story, and one was the flying and the jets and the competition, and the other was the love story. And they kept realizing that the love story kept growing and growing. Like, oh, my gosh. We yep. have a Berlin song in here before too long. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about the soundtrack here in a second. Yeah. So listen to this. So when Epps turned in his screenplay to Don Simpson mm -hmm. and Bruckheimer, they said it was the greatest screenplay they had ever seen. Epps was like, this was music to my ears. Yeah. He's, every screenwriter wants to hear this. But then Pettigrew read it and he's like, I know the Navy's not going to make this. There's right. absolutely no way they're going to go for this. A key reason that the Navy didn't want to be involved with Hollywood is for the last 20 years, Hollywood had been against the Army. I mean, we're talking about Vietnam era. We're talking about, yeah, yeah the, the military was not portrayed in a favorable light at all. And a few of the artists and actors who were involved or almost involved didn't become involved because they thought it was a pro-war movie. And it kind of was. It was. This was a flag-waving, chest-pumping, I'm an American, let's-go-kick-ass movie. It absolutely is. 
which was unlike anything had been for probably 30 years. That's very true. So the Navy was in a little bit of a dilemma. They needed some positive propaganda. Yep. And of course, Simpson and Bruckheimer are, you know, balls out cowboys. So, right. <laughs> right. So Pettigrew knew that the Navy wouldn't go for it because Goose's death in the original script caused for a in-air collision. Yep. Okay? Yeah. So he goes to him and he's like, guys, the Navy's not going to go for this. And in their collision, no way. We are absolute competent pilots. This would not happen. No chance. And they're yeah. like, well, okay. Goose needs to die. Help us out. Okay? Right. Goose needs to die. Maverick needs to feel responsible, but the Navy can't hold him accountable. Right. Okay? And so Pettigrew's like, okay, let's see here. And he's going through this list of accidents in his head. He comes to one where a guy flew through a jet wash mm-hmm. that he couldn't see. It caused his... Jet to spin in a flat spin. Guy's name was Gary Barrett. Bean was his call name. Bean? Bean. And so here's the interesting story. They never fully explain the flat spin and jet and Goose's death, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've seen it a thousand times, and now it really makes sense to me. So when the plane spins on its yaw, the centrifugal force throws the pilot forward. And if you look in the movie, Maverick's face is pressed against the glass up front. He can't reach the ejection handles behind him. And since the Rio is closer to the center of the spin, it's easier for him to grab the ejection cords or whatever. But when you eject, there's two parts to it. There's one, the blast off the canopy, and then the second is the ejection seat. Mm-hmm. And they always tell the Rio, don't panic. Make sure the canopy clears before you eject. Well, Pete Pettigrew remembered a specific accident that happened where the Rio pulled the ejector seat too quickly because there's a low pressure spot above the plane and the canopy wants to hover right there. And so absolutely, positively happened in real life. Goose's accident. Now, I don't know if the guy died, but... He didn't. Uh, they walked away from the accident. Oh, my gosh. One of them broke a leg, but they were able to get away without more significant injury. Now, here's my funny story about call signs, right? Okay, yeah. So... I just got back from a trip with my buddy, Doug Huggin. Uh Doug's a listener. He's excited about our Top Gun episode. And so he has a call sign, right? (laughs) Yeah. His name is Doug Huggin. I said, what's your call sign? He says, Huggy, right? (laughs) Okay. And he said he got off light, right? Uh Uh-huh. He knew somebody in the Navy and his call sign was Skip. He said, think of your worst mistake and think of a funny name involving that. And that's how you get your call sign. So these cool names like Maverick and, you know, Iceman and all this stuff. Uh His buddy's name was Skip because he landed one time a little bit hard and went kaboing and (laughs) like bounced (laughs) off the ground. So... Yeah, they noted in the commentary, the the fighter pilots who were involved in the movie noted, you absolutely 100% cannot give yourself your own call sign. (laughs) Yeah. Because one guy tried to do it and give himself the call sign of Shark, and he was Minnow for the rest of his career. (laughs) I could totally see that. So one of the things that you said is that Paramount, when they went to Katzenberg and they got on the ground and they kissed his foot and they said, please, 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 we're begging you to keep this alive. Well, it didn't happen. The picture died, right? And it sat until there was turnover at Paramount. When the new management came in, they went to lunch with Simpson and Bruckheimer. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, what do you guys got? We got nothing in the pipeline. What do you have? First thing out of his mouth, he's like, well, we've got this thing called Top Gun, and it's about airplanes and fighter pilots, and it's amazing, and we love it, and we want to do it. The guy said, how much? And he said, $14 million? The guy said, go for it. It was dead 
until new management took over and he said the right word, 14 million. Right. Okay. So we've got the director, we've got the script. Yep. We've got the money. Yep. Who are we going to put in the movie? So Jack Epps went to Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer and said, guys, while I'm writing this, I'm thinking Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise got his first movie in Endless Love. Then in 1983, he did The Outsiders. Yeah. With Patrick Swayze Mm -hmm. and C. Thomas Howell and Emilio Estevez and Rob Lowe. We're going to cover that next year. Right. Then he did Risky Business. And then he did All the Right Moves. And then he did Legend with Ridley Scott. Yep. And so Jack Epps kept pushing for him to be the guy. But here's the list of Almost Mavericks. You want to hear You want to hear the list of Almost Mavericks? I do. Okay. Some of these I was like, yeah, I don't know. This is just kind of a list of everybody at the time. Some of them I'm like, wait a minute, what? So here you go. Matthew Modine was the closest one, okay? He was one of those guys who said, pro-war movie, I'm out. So he does Full Metal Jacket. Well, in Full Metal Jacket, he he's it's supposed to be... kind of an anti-war movie. It is. It is yeah. absolutely, yes, yes. Okay. So here's the other guys they had in mind. Tom Hanks in 1986. Ooh. Michael J. Fox. Sean Penn. Matthew Broderick. Nicholas Cage, Emilio Estevez. So far, he's the closest one I could see to be in Maverick, but still. Billy the Kid in an F-14? Sure. I could go for that. Yeah. John Cusack, Patrick Swayze, Scott Bayo. <laughs> Scott Bayo. Uh-huh. Then you've got other names like Kevin Bacon, Eric Stoltz, Rob Lowe, Charlie Sheen at age 18. Too young, right? Yeah, but man has the right look. Then he does Topper Harley a couple years later in Hot Shots. Right. Jim Carrey. What? Jim Carrey is a name on the list. No. Jim Carrey. In 85, they've got, they're looking at Jim Carrey? Yeah. That's nuts. And then, ready for this one? Uh-huh. Get your disco shoes on. John Travolta. That makes sense. Honestly, he was still very young at that time. Yeah. Right age to be a fighter pilot, for sure. Yep. Yeah, totally could see that. But he was too expensive. I could also see that. <laughs> he was the number one box office draw. Okay, last one for you. RDJ, Robert Downey Jr., Oh, wow. Yeah, I can see that, too. Tony Stark? Yeah. I could. So they kept revising the script, and every time they would revise the script, they'd send it to Tom Cruise and go, what do you think? Because he was the guy. All those other guys, he was always the guy that they wanted. Yes. And he never would commit. He expressed some interest, but they could never get him to sort of sign it on the dotted line. Right. And so finally, Jerry Bruckheimer's like, we got to get this kid up in the air. Yep. Calls his buddy at the Naval Aviation. He's like, when are the Blue Angels going up again? Yep. Tells him, he's like, okay, come out. We're going to take you up. So there's this fantastic picture that I have that is Tom Cruise skinny with a ponytail because uh-huh. he's just finished up Ridley Scott's legend and they're about to take him up. They take him up and he throws up everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, grabs the bag. He's trying to get into the bag. And then... He, you know, finally kind of recovers and he's like, okay, well, I've already thrown up. Might as well see what this thing can do. And <laughs> that's never something you're going to say to a fighter pilot. Oh, yeah. Sure as shooting. They showed him what it could do. Brought him back down. He went, walked over to the payphone, called his agent and said, I want to do this movie. Make it happen. I feel the need. The need for speed. That's awesome. That's awesome. So here's what I heard. As he's in the jet and he bends to barf in the bag again, Mm -hmm. and as soon as he does, he does a straight, like, 5G climb (laughs) straight up. So he's heaving and his face is, like, on the floor. He's like, (laughs) And his pilot's name was Bozo, right? Right. And so he's hitting the call sign trying to go, Bozo, 
Bozo! Bozo! <laughs> and then finally he releases and he is able to pop back up and he's like, dude, didn't you hear me? And the guy says, well, they don't call me Bozo for nothing. <laughs> so he said when he got off the plane, he showed everybody, he held up the bag. Like, here it is, guys! <laughs> Let's talk about Iceman for just a second, okay? Okay. You guys really are cowboys. What's your problem, Kazansky? You're everyone's problem. That's because every time you go up in the air, you're unsafe. I don't like you because you're dangerous. That's right. Ice, man. I am dangerous. Val Kilmer did not want to do this movie. He and thought it was stupid and silly. Yeah, so when the when they said something to him about flying, he was like, no way. As soon as we are done filming my parts, I am the heck out of here. He had no interest in this movie at all. And as a part of that deal, he still hung out with the guys and played with them, but he would not communicate with Tom Cruise. It's the whole greasers and the socias thing. Yeah. So Val Kilmer had done Real Genius, and he had done... Top Secret. Top Secret. He's notorious for being very difficult, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the director of The Island of Dr. Moreau, the guy who worked with him later in the 90s, said, if I were making a movie called The Life and Times of Val Kilmer, I would not hire that (laughs) prick. And this is a guy who worked on a movie with him and Marlon Brando. I know, right? Right? Of the two of those, you're not going to expect Marlon Brando to be the more agreeable one. I know. The other guys who flew also threw up everywhere, except for Anthony Edwards. No, 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 no. There's two O's in Goose, boys. Anthony Edwards did not throw up. There's two O's in Goose, boys. So Anthony Edwards is the charming, good nature, everybody likes him, Goose. Yep. So he's perfect for this part. A lot of his lines are improvised, and he is a funny guy anyway and he's lovable boyish fun and a good friend like he just he he captured that good friend comedy cut up guy perfectly you know what he never did his character never went to maverick and said stop doing this cowboy crap we're gonna get kicked out of here Mm -hmm. he just kept going hey man listen i know you're duke mitchell's kid and you know this and that and we'll make it and you know Right. Kind of very softly guiding him. At first I was worried about being the best, and now I'm just worried about making it through the program. I got a family. I can't afford to blow this. Also, Anthony Edwards did not know he was going to sing Great Balls of Fire that day. Oh, right, yeah. Tony Scott just went to him and said, Hey, listen, I've been listening to Jerry Lee Lewis. We're going to try something. You're going to sing Great Balls of Fire. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much love drives a man insane. You broke my will. He doesn't play piano either. (laughs) Name of that bar that they are in is called the Kansas City Barbecue. Yes. Has the piano, has the jukebox. Ended up getting a bunch of memorabilia, and then in I think the early 2000s, had a kitchen fire, burned almost everything. Piano survived, but almost everything else would burn. Let's talk about Charlie for a second. What were you doing there? Communicating. Communicating. You know, giving him the bird. You know, the finger. Yes, I know the finger, Goose. So Charlie, played by Kelly McGillis. McGillis. Yeah. So here's your, here your almosts on Charlie, okay? okay. This list is amazing. Mm-hmm. Julianne Phillips. Okay. Okay. Married to Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. Kind of a 80s actress, whatever. Yeah, she's okay. Sure. Ali Sheedy almost got the part. Okay. She turned it down because she did not think anyone would want to watch a movie about Tom Cruise flying jets. She was wrong about Whoops. that. Deborah Winger. You can see that. I don't know about that one, man. 
Really? I mean, Urban Cowboy? Yeah, I could see that. Okay. Brooke Shields. Mm, no, too young and pretty at that time. <laughs> Speaking of too young and pretty, yeah. Daryl Hannah. Okay. Diane Lane. Sarah Jessica Parker. Diane Lane would have been great. Well, she's gorgeous, but is she old enough to be no, his all, instructor? All too young. Okay. That was an important feature as well with the Navy saying, no, you can't do it this way, because the original script called for him to be in love with another Navy officer. Yep. And they said, no, they are not allowed to fraternize at all. And they're like, well, are they ever around civilians? And they're like, yeah, we've got in, you know inspectors and auditors. That Technical come in. advisors. Well, could she be one of those? Okay, yeah, and that's how that happened. So here's my here's the rest of my list, though. Linda Florentino turned down this role, and here's the one that's going to blow you away. You ready? Yeah. Carrie Fisher. That would have been a good one. Carrie Fisher. I mean, Star Wars on Earth, right? She was old enough to be the instructor. Mm-hmm. She was also three years away from the slave girl outfit in Return of the Jedi. So she was looking good. So she was looking great. Yeah. And old enough, and she almost got the part in Saturday Night Fever. And she would have been probably a better height fit for Tom Cruise, too. Yeah, Kelly McGillis is almost six feet tall. Yeah. She said the entire time they were filming, she had to wear her bare feet. Yeah, and she sat hunched over the whole time. <laughs> Just like I watched that movie and I see my posture, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> you know why she was cast? Tell me. She was cast. <laughs> I do know why. I just well, want you to say it. <laughs> she was cast because she was old enough. She was 29. She had just come off a witness. Yeah. And Tony Scott had seen her with her shirt off. In witness. In witness. Yes. That and was so it. he's Tony's like, Scott. woo! She's pretty and sophisticated and she took her top off in witness. So there you go. That was enough for him. <laughs> So listen to this. The character portrayed by Kelly McGillis is based on Christine Fox, yep. who is a civilian flight instructor that everybody met while they're in Miramar, right? Mm-hmm. She eventually went through the ranks and retired in 2014 as Acting Deputy Secretary of Defense, the highest post ever held by a woman in the Department of Defense. Wow. That's something. That's a deep dive, too. Good job. Thank you. I've also seen her. Yeah. She's pretty. Major. She's, she's good looking. All yeah. right. Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise did not have especially good chemistry off-screen. You know who she did have good chemistry with? Wolfman. Barry Taub. Yep. Yep. Who was just, I mean, he was young. He was like 21 or something, I think, when they were shooting this movie. He's the guy with the cowboy hat, if you don't know. It hasn't done just a whole lot of stuff after that, but apparently she was walking along the street, fell flat on her face, and he came and rescued her, and she said, I was a sucker for romance, and so they started dating. Yep. That's a great story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to bat for Kelly McGillis here for just a second, okay? Okay. A lot of people give her crap because she's not Hollywood glamorous gorgeous. I thought she looked great. I thought she looked great, and I thought that she the, the romance between them was very believable. Let's talk about Carol for a second. Hey, Goose, you big stud! That's me, honey. Take me to bed or lose me forever. Show me the way home, buddy. That is Goose's wife. Now, Meg Ryan hadn't been in... Anything except maybe soap operas before this. As the world turns. Yeah. How about that? That's crazy. Knowing how big she became to think that this is her first major movie role. She was the second choice. And I did everything I could to figure out who the first actress selected was. Yeah. Couldn't find it. Huh. Tony Scott hired this other actress. Bruckheimer went to Tony Scott and was like, I'm not really feeling it with this girl. Yeah. And he's like, well, who's your second choice? And he said, well, this young woman named Meg Ryan, but she's only done soap operas. And I'm afraid that if we hire a soap opera actress that people won't really go for. Mm -hmm. And Bruckheimer's like, dude, only guys are going to be watching this movie. (laughs) Nobody watches soap operas. Who cares? Right. Hire her. Well, he's wrong about that. 
Well, they, he was wrong about because that. Because Tony Scott made a movie for men and, and women. women. Yes. And just not to deviate too far from your topic, Meg Ryan killed it in this role. I mean, she, she had just, owns the part, yeah. She has a small part, but she absolutely, she's the perfect combo for Goose. She's young and fun and silly and vibes so well with him. And then after Goose dies... That moment, I mean, they said that they filmed it nine or ten times, and every single time she went from normal to I'm crying, and this is the most emotional moment in my life on a dime. Okay, let's talk about Slider for just a second. Okay. Rick Rosovich. Yeah. Rick Roxanne. We both love the movie Roxanne. We have to cover that soon. He plays Chris in Roxanne. Because I was afraid of worms, Roxanne. Worms! Yeah. One of the best movies in 1987. We absolutely love it. We're going to have to cover that at some point. He got kicked off the ship a couple of times. <laughs> he was a bit of a hellraiser. That a little guy. bit of a turd, yeah. <laughs> he said he his bunk was right next to a, a nuclear warning sign. Uh-huh. And so he's like, well, screw this. I'm not sleeping here. So he just went and found a bunk. Turns out he was in the bunk of an officer. Ooh. That officer said, get the heck out of my bed. Yeah. And he stood up and said, you want to, you know, try to take me on for Make this me? thing? Yeah. You want him, Mr. Big Mouth? And so he got called up to the chief's office and the chief reprimanded him harshly mm-hmm. and kicked him off the ship. He was like, you know, I was in better shape back then, which is why you catch me posing in the volleyball scene, which is a great, very memorable moment. Sure it is. And if... At the very end of the movie, as they're all celebrating, you know, the, the lines have changed. You can be my wingman anytime. BS, you can yeah, be mine. Right. Everybody's, he's the one turning around so you can see his face. He's facing the camera the whole way. <laughs> mugging. Just <laughs> mugging. All right. Quickly. Viper. Yeah. Played by Tom Skerritt. You are the top 1% of all naval aviators. The elite. Best of the best. We'll make it better. Who had done work with Tony Scott's brother Ridley Scott in Alien? That's exactly right. Be sure right. and go back and check out our Alien versus Terminator episode. They originally thought of Lewis Gossett Jr. Iron Eagle. Iron Eagle. Uh huh. An officer and a gentleman. So yeah. he played the military guy. Right. They thought about John Voight. Okay. Who would have been great in that part? Mm-hmm. But I thought Tom Scarrett does a great job. Fantastic. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now then, Michael Ironside, Jester. Jester's dead. Woohoo! Just as dead. Yeehaw! Get your butts above the hard deck and return to base immediately. Michael Ironside didn't think he should be playing this part. Number one, he's Canadian. (laughs) Number two, he didn't feel like he possessed the right kind of attitude and physique to be an officer in the Navy. And so he's on board the ship. He's obviously in costume at this point. He he can hear this... And he sees this junior officer running along as fast as he can. And when he sees Michael Ironsides, he stops, walks. And Michael Ironsides is like, slow down, son. And the the guy salutes him and says, yes, sir. Sorry, sir. (laughs) He's like, okay, maybe I can't Maybe I can do this. Yeah. That's great. Here's a funny story that I heard about Michael Ironsides. Okay. Okay. So this is a couple years after Top Gun. Uh And he's at a bar. And he said on either side of him, these two giant jarheads came up. And they're Mm -hmm. like, he's like. What's up, fellas? <laughs> and they're like, you're in that Top Gun movie, weren't you? He's like, uh, yeah, I was. I'm like, you're the effing reason why we joined the Navy. This is bullcrap. Because <laughs> it wasn't fighter pilots and babes all the time. And he's like, ew. He said it was very uncomfortable conversation, and they were not happy and blaming him. Yeah. 
I can say that I have, you mentioned Doug Huggin. I've got two other friends that if they didn't become pilots because of this movie, it was sure a big factor in their decision. Doug Huggin, my college roommate, used to, he was in the Naval ROTC. Mm -hmm. He would get out Top Gun, put it in, play it to the bar scene, pause it. (laughs) So that he could put his uniform on correctly. Oh, that's great. How well, you doing, you got to have a reference, right? That's right. Uh, that's funny. Uh, another college friend of mine, Eric Matoyer. I know Top Gun was a big influence on him. Chris Alexander, one of our Patreons. All right, I got two more guys I want to talk about before we move on. Uh-huh. All right, I want to talk about one of the guys who got totally screwed over in this movie. Okay. I'm spiking my football. This guy, for whatever reason, got screwed the entire movie. Okay. Sundown. <laughs> My man Sundown. Theo? Theo from Die Hard. And And the the quarterback quarterback is toast! (laughs) Same guy. Okay, so he gets paired up with Maverick halfway through Top Gun for whatever reason. He's there at all the classes. Goose gets killed. Sundown gets put with Maverick. Maverick won't take the shot. So he confronts him, unlike other people. He's like, dude, we could have had him. Why didn't you take the shot? And Tom Cruise says, I will fire when I am... Good and ready. You got that. So what happens to Sundown? He gets fired, moved away. <laughs> I don't know. He, he goes away. You he never graduate? see him. No. So at the end of the movie, when they send Tom Cruise up, he still doesn't have a Rio. Should Sundown go with him? No. Nope. Stick him with Merlin. <laughs> so they brought Merlin up. Tim Robbins. And early, early in his career. Role. Yeah. Yeah. Who later plays Nuke Lelouch. Yeah. And Andy, uh, Andy Dufresne. Dufresne. Yep. yep. But Sundown, once he confronts Maverick... Never see him again. And then one more thing. Mess with the bull, you get the horn. (laughs) He goes on to join an international terrorist and and, uh, is uh, involved in the Nakatomi incident in December of 1988. (laughs) All right. One more person I want to talk about is Stinger. We didn't bring him along for his charming personality, did we? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Sundown goes on to get punched out by Argyle at Nakatomi <laughs> Plaza. <laughs> Speaking of crossovers, Stinger, okay. played by James Tolkien. He is never referred to as Stinger, only Sir. He's the guy who's like, you two characters are going to Top Gun. Oh, didn't that guy ever have hair? <laughs> yes. How bad did you want him to call him Slacker? Yeah. <laughs> you two Slackers. Are going oh to Top Gun. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Perfect for that part. Have we moved past casting? We're or done now? with casting. We're now. done with casting. Let's talk about the movie itself. Tony Scott realized that he wanted a rock and roll in the sky movie, right? Yes. And it's interesting because it was very important to him that he hit the golden hour, right? So they're they're filming at 6 to 7 in the morning and (laughs) 6 to 7 at night when the sun is just on the horizon and it's the perfect kind of sun. And so I watched the movie. If it's not a plane in the sky, it is golden hour. Like if if you're on the deck or you're on the ground, the sun is hitting you from the side. It is golden hour every single time. And that very first scene that you see in the movie, which is all very technical, real guys doing their real jobs which has the best music transition at the beginning of a movie that it I've seen blows my doors off it's every time fantastic and we can get there when we get to music but so good that was the scene that he was shooting in slow motion that he got fired for right yes and it's definitely golden hour it's all orange and beautiful and they're <laughs> he's filming this stuff 
and all of a sudden the ship turns and it's going a different direction and he's he's like what 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 are you doing like this is putting the sun in the wrong spot and they're like well we're you know we're out of our time and and all this and then he's like, what do I have to do? And they're like, it's going to cost you like $25,000. No, wait. He, before that, he goes, can you keep going the same direction? And they go, nope. <laughs> <laughs> what will it take? Yes. It will take $25,000. He goes down, gets his own personal checkbook, writes a check for $25,000, gives it to them, and they start heading back that direction again so he can get the shot. You know what happened to that check, don't you? It balanced. <laughs> of course it did. Like a baller? The only money he had was from the hunger. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Now, can we talk about the first scene in the movie? Yes. Okay, so you got Cougar, who, that guy was real familiar to me, and I looked him up. I think the only thing that I can recognize him from, John Stockwell, is from Christine, the Stephen King movie. Yes. He was kind of the friend slash bullyish kind of guy there in that movie. Did you ever see My Science Project? No. He was in that. Okay. okay. Well, there you go. He was also in Losing It with Tom Cruise. Right. One of the first boob movies that Tom Cruise did. Oh, okay. There you go. I'll check that one out when we get home. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, Cougar. His character is Cougar, and he they have this experience with the MIG, and he gets freaked out. Yo, little old Cougar. Pull up, Cougar. Most war movies, you start off with a death, right? <clears throat> and Pete Pettigrew talked about that. He's like, all of these other war movies, you start off with a death, and now the main character's got to, like, you know, revenge right. the death or something like that. Sure. And so you're watching him come in, and that plane, I get, I don't know how they got the pilot to wave that plane side to side, up and down, diagonal like he was, but I'm like, dude, that guy's going to crash. Absolutely. He's about to crash into the deck of the aircraft carrier. Everyone will die. You know that was in the original script, right? Well, that was what Pete Pettigrew said. You guys shouldn't do this. And they followed his advice. They're like, all the other guys do this. Why don't you have something where you build a relationship with a character so that when he does die, that you feel it? And so that's why they changed it. It was his advice. What you did was an incredibly heroic thing. What you should have done was land that plane. You don't own that plane. The taxpayers do. <laughs> Right. I listened to the commentary on this. Yeah. You, you got Pete Pettigrew and Mike McCabe and several other of the pilots, right? Sure. Who were talking and they all said they knew something like this happening to somebody that they know. And that doubt and that second guessing, it really will make guys go, I'm turning in my wings. I'm not going to do this anymore. Wow. Real life. Here's the thing I want to talk about about the opening scene. Yeah. So when Jack Epps was talking to all these guys, he's like, what's the scariest thing you guys do? He's like, man to man to man said, landing on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean at night. 100% worst thing. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, oh, that's great. We got to put that in the script. We got to find a spot for that. And they kept looking for that spot. I think it was Jerry Bruckheimer said, well, let's just put it at the beginning. Yeah. And so that's why you have that super tense, Cougar, pull up, pull up, Cougar. And uh, you start off that movie with, with such tension right off the bat. So of course, before all of that happens, you have the communicating, right? You know, keeping up foreign relations. The you know, the bird. <laughs> you know, the finger. Yes, I know the finger. Yes. Love that scene. Look at the birdie. <laughs> Jeez, I cracked myself up. <laughs> so Pettigrew said they did actually do this type of stuff with when they would engage with an enemy. You know, but he says if you're, it's a true engagement, you probably are never going to see the guy if you get hit, right? I mean, if it's a genuine, right. we're in a fight. In the situations where there was a meeting, but it wasn't like a fight type engagement. Right. 
they would communicate, like they'd see each other and they just kind of appreciated, hey, you know, he's just doing his job, I'm just doing my job. And he said, but we wouldn't like flip each other off. It'd be like we'd show him Playboy pictures and (laughs) they'd hold up a bottle of vodka. You know, that was was the exchange that they had between them. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I like that. Okay. While we're right here, this is one of my biggest problems. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's a total cowboy move to be in an inverted negative dive with a MiG-28. I get it. Yeah. A meter and a half from an airplane <laughs> meter, going... Meter and a half? 800 miles an hour. Uh, come on. Ludicrous. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Now, giving the, give, pulling up next to him, giving the finger, no problem. A meter and a half? Mm-hmm. Nah, I'm not. No. Can't do it. Yeah. Not buying it. Okay, next scene. Next scene. Bar scene. It's my favorite. Like, I told you I'm not a big go-fast sports guy, right? Sure. So this movie was good for me. I liked it, but I didn't go crazy like 90% of the guys my age did for this movie. So what was my favorite scene for the longest time was she's lost that love and feeling. I hate it when she does that. Yeah. Oh, that scene is so good. I mean, there's so many quotes in this movie. When they walk in the bar and Maverick says, this is a target-rich environment. <laughs> he said, Goose, even you could get laid in a place like this. But the, the you've lost that love and feeling scene. How many proms and high schools and summer camps reenacted that scene in Top Gun? We did it routinely in the classroom when I was in school. <laughs> we'd find a girl and we'd all go sing it. And the the place where they went was called the Oak Club. And up until probably just a year or so before they started filming the movie, they still had strippers at the Oak Club. Oh, yeah. Did they? One of the officer's wives, you know, probably had enough of that. And, it was, and they were sent out. But it's a real place where <laughs> officers were... Her call sign was wet blanket. Pilots go, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And um, obviously where girls who are interested in dating pilots go. Looking for a naval aviator. (laughs) By the way, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, sung by Bill Medley. Who we covered in our Dirty Dancing episode. That introduced Bill Medley to me. Yeah. I'd never heard of the Righteous Brothers. Okay. So when Dirty Dancing comes along Mm -hmm. and the song Time of My Life comes out by Bill Medley and Jennifer Lawrence, I'm like... It's the guy from Top Gun. (laughs) Right. All right. We have to talk about the volleyball scene. Okay. So Tony Scott wanted to create a movie that not only appealed to men, it also appealed to women. So the way to do that was to have guys who did awesome stuff like fly fighter jets, but guys who looked like fashion models. Yeah. And so he had this book by Bruce Weber that had all of these black and white shots of different male models in them. And a few of them looked like Tom Cruise. And there were other guys who was like, hey, that looks like Val Kilmer. That's probably how he got cast in that part. But he wanted to have something that was enticing for both the men and the women. And the volleyball scene, probably both. Probably both. Absolutely. You got the volleyball scene, you got the locker room scene, mm-hmm. which we need to talk about both. There are no showers for the real <laughs> Top Gun students. 
Yes. There are not. They have locker rooms, yes, but usually they just they'll leave in their flight clothes, and if they're going to the bar, they change clothes in the parking lot. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's there are no showers, but that is pure Hollywood. The locker room scene. Yep. But as a sports movie, you have to have it, and as a movie that you're wanting to appeal to women, you have to have it in a situation where guys are shirtless and wet. Yes. There's so many funny quotes in that locker room that I still say today, right? Mm-hmm. So the one that cracks me up, it's in the background, and in the you can hear the guy in the background go, five more seconds, Wolfman, I'm coming in." <laughs> <laughs> But when Val Kilmer and Maverick lock horns in the locker room, mm-hmm. you have that really intense stare down that we need to talk about. He goes, you two really are cowboys. Maverick turns around and says, what's your problem, Kazansky? Which I say all the time. What's your problem, Kazansky? Right. He says, you're everyone's problem. Every time you go up, you're unsafe. I don't like you because you're dangerous. Says, That's right. I s- Man. I am dangerous. Yeah. And then you get the teeth chomp. Yeah. Which is... A very ridiculous retort. I don't really but understand it's that. It's memorable. It's memorable. But uh, that whole scene is put there so that you can have some interaction between the characters and something for the ladies. Now then, the volleyball scene. There was no volleyball net there. Nope. That afternoon, they brought in a dump truck full of sand, set yeah. up a volleyball net, told the guys to take off your shirts and let's look like studs. Tom Cruise is spiking the volleyball. I'm not sure how that works because he's five foot six. Right. But uh, the funny part about that is that Val Kilmer says, if you look at that scene, he's almost in none of that scene. Mm-hmm. You can see his face. He's off to the side. He's never really featured in it. And Tony Scott said, sorry, Val, your stuff all got cooked, which means it got overexposed, so you can't use it. Right. And he's like, man, that's bullcrap. This is the best I've ever looked in my life. <laughs> right. And, Val, and Tony Scott's like, eh, Sorry. A whole lot of Rick Rossvich. Right. Well, and then in the locker room scene, Val didn't know they were going to be shooting that scene that day. And so he, you know, he, he wasn't food pumped. Or something. Yeah, like he'd been drinking soda and not worked out in a couple of days. And they're like, oh, hey, we're shooting more in the locker room scene. What? 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 <laughs> no. Okay. Before we tackle the big question. Yeah. I got one more scene I want to bring up to you. Okay. There's an elevator scene dropped in the middle of this movie mm-hmm. where Kelly McGillis is wearing a ball cap. Yep. And Tom Cruise just got out of a shower. His hair is wet, Mm -hmm. but it looks especially long. It does. Tell me about that scene. So they had finished with all of the primary filming of the movie. They thought they were done. And when they go back and watch, they're like, they haven't built a relationship enough. The audience who would watch it would be like, I felt like there should be more between Kelly McGillis's character and Tom Cruise's character. And so it's like, okay, we need to film more. And so he's let his hair grow out at this point because he's not, you know, doing he's the military. He's filming Color of Money. Color of Money, which he's got the perm for, right? That's Remember right. that? Yes. It's the Hustler Part 2. That's right. Great movie. And she's filming a movie called Made in Heaven where she has completely dyed her hair and she's also lost a huge amount of weight. It's the now, same reason why in the love scene it's completely dark and sort of blue hues and stuff like that. They're hiding the fact that the actors look totally different than they did five months earlier. The love scene was filmed later. Really? The love scene and the elevator scene were filmed in the same day, one day in Chicago. Wow. And it was a rush job. They literally had like 45 minutes to shoot that. Wow. So that scene was dropped in the middle after screening audiences said they needed to fluff the love scene a little bit more. Wow. That's good. You're blowing my mind here. Okay. All right. I got a big question for you. Okay. I mean, really, this is the biggest question in the movie. You ready? Yeah. Who is the better pilot? Iceman? Or Maverick. Are you asking me who I'd rather go out with? 
Do you want him on your side? Who do you want on your side? You get the first draft pick. Who are you taking? It's unquestionably Iceman. You don't want a Maverick as part of your team. You don't want a guy who's unstable, unreliable, unsafe. He's unsafe. Every time he goes up, he's dangerous. You called me about this. Yeah. This was the Walmart call, right? Yeah. You asked me this question. I said the same thing then. And then I'm listening to the commentary. And of course, Pete Pettigrew says, well, you know, Iceman is the better pilot because you don't want a Maverick. You want somebody who's going to be safe and reliable on your side as your wingman. So there you go. Confirmation of your opinion. I totally agree. Iceman is the better pilot. Maverick is talented. Uh, I'll tell you who I don't want is Hollywood, who got his butt kicked every time by Jester. <laughs> Woohoo, Jester's dead. <laughs> Yoo-hoo, Jester dead. Here's another question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so we've already tackled the Iceman versus Maverick pilot question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's the second question. Yeah. Is there any way you would have Maverick going up, attacking Migs at the end of the movie... <laughs> After he's demonstrated, he's not ready to go back up. No, Iceman is completely right. And this is another thing that's completely inaccurate about the movie. So the guys who were called up to go to Top Gun, they were the top pilots in their particular squadron. So what happens was they would go train at Top Gun. And then when they were done, they would go back and teach the other pilots the dogfighting tactics that they learned at Top Gun. There's no situation where the guys at Top Gun would all go to the same place together. They wouldn't get their orders at the you know graduation ceremony or whatever, and they sure as shooting wouldn't make it to the Indian Ocean in 24 hours. That's <laughs> nuts, right? That's all just ridiculous. You got to have Iceman and Maverick flying together, and you have to have that tension of is Maverick going to lose it like Cougar did, or is he going to come back? Because that's what this movie is all about: is can a guy get knocked down on his knees? I mean, this is the it, this is the definitive naval superhero, absolutely. Absolutely ego-driven, top of the I'm the best mentality who gets knocked down to his core and he comes back. By the way, something I wanted to mention. Mm -hmm. Don Simpson had to go to rehab during the middle of filming Top Gun. And before and after. And after, right. Mr. Cocaine and Hookers, right? (laughs) But they said he would drive into the parking lot like straight from rehab. Mm -hmm. They say he would crash the car in the parking lot. (laughs) He would just break into a meeting disrupt the whole thing fire everyone and say we're not shooting this bs and they were like who in the crap is this guy (laughs) and he jumped back in the car with david lee roth (laughs) (laughs) so don simpson a bit of a wild card and uh struggling at this moment yeah it'll be interesting to talk about the uh what happened after the movie with him yes okay so we've got the movie made now it's time for the soundtrack One of the greatest soundtracks of all time. Absolutely. In the 80s, soundtracks were so important, so huge. And for me, like, anytime I want to revisit the summer of 86, I pop in the Top Gun soundtrack. Yeah, it it was a huge album on the charts, and they did a great job. I mean, they went and got Kenny Loggins. Yep. Who had just done Footloose and had done Caddyshack, both great songs in the movies, right? yeah. They go and get Harold Faltmeyer, who did Axel F, which, I mean, of course, they were involved in that movie. Of course, they're going to go get him. And then they did Giovanni Mordor, who is a multi-award winning composer, did The NeverEnding Story. I mean, brilliant guy, too. And they put together a incredible 
rock and roll album. Here's the here's the story behind this. Okay. They put an open call for artists who want to make rock songs for the movie. They show the movie to the people. Kenny Loggins and his people are there and they're watching and he looks around and he's like, man, there's tons of talent in this room. Mm-hmm. So we're going to pick a scene that nobody else is going to go for. And so they chose the volleyball scene. So they wrote Playing With The Boys. Right. Which is classic fun. It's, it's very yeah. memorable. Yeah. So he writes that. Yep. The other song, obviously, that's super important to the movie is Danger Zone. who they had in mind for Danger Zone? I do, because we talked about it in our Toto episode. The guys from Toto were scheduled to do Danger Zone. Yep. Which is incredible. They went to him and they said, hey, we like your singer. We want to get some session musicians to play instead of you guys. (laughs) And they were like, we are A-list musicians. What are you talking about? No, no thank you. We are out. So Toto called the ball and said, no, we don't have the ball. (laughs) Right. So at the last second, mm-hmm. I mean, they had talked to, to Brian Adams. They had talked to Judas Priest about putting the song in. They needed somebody to sing Danger Zone. Right. And they had Kenny Loggins, who was there at that time, recording, playing with the boys. Yep. So they called Kenny Loggins. They're like, hey, listen, we got this great song. We got no singer for it. Mm-hmm. Kenny Loggins goes, I got one question. Is it up-tempo? He's like, because I needed some up-tempo songs for my concerts. Yeah. And they said, yes, it is. He's like, great, I'll do it. Didn't know anything about it. Never heard it. Said yes. And that is how you get Kenny Loggins doing Danger Zone. Perfect. It's perfect. Now, the song itself was written by Giovanni Mordor. Yep. Which we talked about. Yep. And his writing partner, Tom Whitlock. Okay. Okay. Yep. Mordor did the music. Whitlock did the lyrics. Okay. Do you know how these guys met? (laughs) He was his mechanic. Yes. (laughs) Tom Whitlock was working on Giovanni Mordor's Ferrari, and he goes... Oh, by the way, in addition to being a mechanic, I'm also a lyricist. So if you've ever got a song you need some words to, I'm happy. I'm your guy. Bing, bang, boom, danger zone. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. So on guitar on this one, yes, we've got Dan Huff from the band Giant. Yeah, he's the lead singer from Giant. Yes. And on saxophone, into the song has saxophone on it, Okay. we have Tom Scott, who also played saxophone for the Blues Brothers. <laughs> By the way, quick shout out for my man from Giant. He sings one of my favorite songs of all time, and absolutely, I'm going to put this in. Yeah. Song called I'll See You in My Dreams. Love this song. All right. I'm glad you got that in there, buddy. I, I mean, there's no way you can get in there otherwise. <laughs> Because we're ever going to talk about Giant. Never. 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 Okay. Okay. So this song almost made it to number one, got to number two, kept out by a song that you probably had bleeding out of your ears in the summer of 1986. That's true. Sledgehammer. Listen, Sledgehammer's good and the video's cool. It is not Top Gun Danger Zone. It was because of the video that that song received the attention that it did. And it's catchy, but it... It is obnoxiously catchy. Obnoxiously in your ear. It's an earworm. Yeah. The next thing we got to talk about is the song Take My Breath Away. 
It is, absolutely. This was also by Mordor and Whitlock. Yep. They had another person who sang it first. The band was called The Motels. Yeah, The Motels. And they recorded a version of it, but ultimately they decided, hey, you know, Berlin had a hit with us. No more words, yeah. And Great song. And The Girl's Hot. Okay, stop the presses right there. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> Rank the Top Gun babes, because there's only three women involved in Top Gun, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Kelly McGillis, mm-hmm. Meg Ryan, mm-hmm. Terry Nunn. So Terry, it's interesting because Terry Nunn, I, in the stuff that I saw, she was like really envious of Kelly McGillis in this movie because she's getting to get down and get dirty with Tom Cruise. It looked pretty nice. Dude, Terry Nunn. Still good looking at 62, guys. She's still she, good looking. She is a major babe. Yeah. And still and, looks great at 62. I mean, and in the 80s, whoa. Yeah. 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 The interesting thing about Berlin, Terry Nunn is beautiful, Mm -hmm. and she's got a killer voice, but they were known as kind of a synth-pop band, True. and so this didn't really fit their style, and so her partner in the band, John Crawford, was like, this is not Berlin. This is not us. This is not our sound. We didn't write this. We didn't perform this. This is not us. Right. And now, the mega success of this song, we got to play it at every single concert? Yeah. This is bullcrap. Yeah. And that song ultimately caused the rift that split the band that is why you don't have Berlin anymore. It's tragic. Song went number one in September of 86. Yeah. To me, there's four songs that we really got to talk about this okay. one. We've hit two. The other one is Heaven in Your Eyes by Loverboy. Yeah, that's a good one. Which is interesting. Mike Reno, obviously also in the Footloose soundtrack with Kenny almost, Loggins. Almost Paradise, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Great song. Yes. And then, of course, the Top Gun anthem. Ah. So Harold Faltmeyer, who had done Axel F, comes along and they're like, hey, we need a song that is like an anthem, but also kicks butt. And he delivered in spades. So they're at dinner with Harold Faltmeyer. Uh-huh. And Jerry Brockheimer's like, okay, we need this anthem. And it needs to be heroic and awesome and inspiring. And Harold Faltmeyer's like, well, I've been kind of working on something. I think I've got it. <laughs> and Jerry Brockheimer's like, I'd like to hear it. And he's like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll run it over next week or whatever. He's like, no, like, right now. Harold Faltemar's like, when I said that, I didn't really have anything ready. <laughs> and so Jerry Bruckheimer's like, no, I'm coming over right now. Like, let's go. Uh-huh. And Harold Faltemar's like, I'm going to get a head start on you. Put your fork down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he raced home and started kind of doing stuff you know and the next thing you know Bruckheimer's over there and he plays this thing for him and they're like this is great (laughs) and he's like yeah and of course it is great yeah it turns out you know who's playing guitar Steve Stevens from Billy Idol yep Steve Stevens from Billy Idol and Dirty Diana and all sorts of other acts that he's been with but yeah which is interesting because one of the connections I heard was they said before the Top Gun pilots would actually fly, the original guys, the actual Top Gun pilots, mm-hmm. they would all listen to Billy Idol. Nice. How about that? That's good. Okay. Hey, one more song. Two more songs we've got to talk about real quick. I'm going to throw some love at the Cheap Trick song called Mighty Wings. Okay. I love it. Okay. A fantastic song. They play it while they're dogfighting. I love it. It was the only single that was released that didn't end up charting. I, but I'm glad you like it. I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> The other song we need to talk about is Great Balls of Fire. Yeah, How so, in the world is that not on the soundtrack? Well, they it ended up being on the special edition. It, it came did. out in 99. 13 now, years after the movie. Yeah, 13 years after the movie. You had that one. 
you had sitting on the dock of the bay, and you've lost that love and feeling, of course. I right. Mean, that was the one that I was like, why isn't this one on there? But obviously, we know it's pretty tricky to get songs on a soundtrack. It is. And if the basis of your song is, hey, I was listening to the radio on the way over, and we're going to have you sing this song, you probably haven't done a lot of preparation with, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis <laughs> That's or the true. Righteous Brothers or whatever, right? That's true. That's true. Interesting connection to Meg Ryan, Top Gun, Great Balls of Fire. Yeah. Dennis Quaid plays Jerry Lee Lewis in a movie two years later. Right. Marries Meg Ryan. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. It all comes full circle. Yep. Before we leave off on the music, I'm going to throw back to that beautiful transition that we talked about. So the Top Gun anthem without the heavy guitar in it is what you hear at the beginning when you're seeing all of the guys on the aircraft carrier deck prepping the planes pilots getting in the planes all of that sunset it's beautiful it's incredible and then finally the plane pulls the throttle the jets light up and you transition out of the top top gun anthem right into danger zone and it blows your freaking doors off as you like to say oh my gosh yes my skirt is flying way off at that (laughs) moment right that, at that moment, me and about a million other teenagers decided they want to be naval aviators. Exactly. Speaking of, the Navy received a 500% increase in people applying to be naval aviators yeah. after this movie. Yep. It was so much that they actually put naval recruitment stations outside the theater. <laughs> the movie theater! Yeah. Well, might as well cut them off the pass, right? Get them, <laughs> get them while they're hot. That's right. All right. So just a couple of tidbits for you. The Real Top Gun School. Yeah. Institutes a $5 fine for every quote of the movie Top Gun that you say. <laughs> uh, I am telling you Here's right now. 20 bucks. I'm in for the day. <laughs> I would walk in. I'd be like, Goose, you big stud. <laughs> There's five. Oh, my gosh. Start a tab. And here's one that always stuck with me. When Maverick lands on the aircraft carrier, mm-hmm. I've seen this movie a thousand times. Right. The guy in the tower says, Maverick, call the ball. Maverick says, Roger, Maverick has the ball. And you get the idea that each guy knows what they're doing. Right. But what that actually means is, do you see the light-up marker? Uh-huh. And Maverick's reply is, yes, I see it. it. Basically, do you see the aircraft carrier? Yes, I do. I see it, and I'm in control. Gotcha. Roger, Maverick has the ball. Right. All right. So let me ask you this question. You ready? Yeah. Most quoted line from this movie for you and your household? Talk to me, Goose. Okay. I say that all the time. Mine is negative Ghost Rider. The pattern is flawed. <laughs> because my kids are always asking me for stuff, and I'm like, negative Ghost Rider. The pattern is full. Whenever somebody comes up to me in my household, they're like, Dad, can I ask you a question? I'm like, talk to me, Goose. <laughs> of course, my wife says, Jason, you big stud. <laughs> take me to bed or lose me forever. Uh-huh. I wish. Okay, guys, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to have our Shirley Showcase this week. It's from one of my oldest friends in the entire world, Chris Alexander. Chris is a Patreon member. He's one of my best friends. So let's hear what Chris has to say about Top Gun. Hey, everyone from the Shirley Podcast. This is Chris Alexander. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Just wanted to say thanks to Jason D. for doing uh, the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. Love it. Love it all. And thanks for giving me this chance to be part of the Shirley Spotlight. So let's get this started. I feel the need, the need for speed. 
I was 12 years old in May of 1986 when Top Gun was released. I was already obsessed with airplanes and especially military aviation. The movie could not have started off any better. The opening scene is simply awesome. The visuals of the F-14s and A-6s and A-7s moving around on the flight deck of the aircraft carrier and all the deckhands, steam clouds from the catapults flying by. It was just amazing. Not to mention the music and how it builds up until the first launch of the Tomcat in full afterburner just as the electric guitar and drums kick in. It was just epic. I am positive that no matter what happened in the movie after that, it wouldn't have mattered. That opening was just that good. Luckily, the rest of the movie was great as well. So many iconic moments in the movie that remain in today's lexicon. All the one-liners. You know, it's classified, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Yes, Goose, I know the finger. Sorry, I hate it when it does that. Hey, Mav, you got the number for that truck driving school? Slider? (laughs) You stink. You never leave your wingman, and let's not forget the high-low five at the sand volleyball pit. All those things were just immediately added to the slang across the world. Heck, I still say some of that stuff today. Overall, the flying and dogfighting scenes were great. The actors were great. The music was top-notch. I don't think anyone could have done a better job. Top Gun 2 really has some uh, pretty big shoes to fill, and I'm looking forward to seeing it, seeing how it stacks up. Thanks again go to Jason and D, and especially to Cougar for turning in his wings. Anyone seen aircraft carrier around here? And oh, by the way, another reason I know this movie was great, because I'm one of those guys that fell prey to the best Navy recruiting tool ever created. I spent 20 years flying in the Navy. Thanks, Top Gun. Okay, there you go. Chris, I knew you were going to have that opinion, number one, because back in 86, we probably saw this movie 10 times together in the theater. Chris, thank you for your service. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your patronage. And thank you for your Shirley Showcase. All right, are we ready to talk reception? Yes, let's. Quickly. Yes, let's. Okay, this was the number one movie of 1986. Number one. Number one. Number one. Number one. Number one by a mile. This beat Crocodile Dundee at number two and Platoon at number three. That's freaking incredible. And I know with me and my friends, anytime we got bored, we rode our bike to the movie theater to watch Top Gun. (laughs) That's all we did all summer of 86. Why not? This movie basically is credited with starting the home video industry. Can see that? Because VHS tapes before this mm-hmm. were like 100 bucks. Oh, wow. And they were only sold basically to video stores. Right. When Top Gun came out on VHS, uh-huh. it was 25 bucks. This is how Vestron made all of its money so that it could go on to produce Dirty Dancing. There you go. <clears throat> That? How about that? Good yeah. job. Nice tie-in right there. Yeah, that is not actually correct. I was just joking. <laughs> joking. Top Gun is the tenth highest-grossing movie of the 1980s. So this created the true Simpson-Bruckheimer combo that went on to blow the doors off of all movie theaters for the next. 12 years. Sure. As we've mentioned, Don Simpson was a bit of a wild card. Yes, he was. He's a bit of a maverick, if you will. He was a maverick. And so I mentioned earlier, we would have a story about a naked rehab doctor (laughs) found dead of a drug overdose in Don Simpson's pool house. This is true. So Don Simpson's behavior got worse and worse and worse. And these guys initially were known for guys who could take a $14 million budget movie and turn it into, you know, hundreds of millions in revenue, which is huge. Yeah. And then Days of Thunder happened and it was like, oh, maybe these guys aren't as gold as we thought. Sure. And so as that, as things continued to escalate, his erratic behavior did as well. His drug use did as well. And he would go to this place called Canyon Ranch which was supposed to be for rehab purposes, but probably it's just where he was getting plastic surgery. He denied getting plastic surgery, but 
good information is he probably had about 10 different ones, including a penis enlargement. (laughs) There you go, folks. Where are you going to get this? (laughs) And so his behavior was getting more and more out of control. And people with Jerry Bruckheimer, who was married, Don Simpson was never married, with him, including Jerry Bruckheimer's wife, was like, you got to end this. This guy's out of control. He's going to bring you down with him. And so at some point, he's like, hey, I'm going to have my own private rehab guy come in here and help me out (laughs) my own private rehab guy and so he brings in this guy named dr stephen ammerman who is a very sketchy rehab doctor and his rehab is really let's do different drugs to get off the drugs that you're on right now sure and he ends up dying in the shower at don simpson's pool house and so that news comes out and jerry Bruckheimer is like okay we're done i i mean we got dead naked doctors in your pool house. Yeah. I can't keep working with you. Right. So it's the end of this mammoth production team. And a month later, Simpson thinks he's getting back together. He's talked to a few folks. He's going into rehab again, doing some work. Has a guy call him, a guy named James Toback, who he's he's talking to him about this script idea he, he has called Harvard Man. Okay. That involves a guy who goes to Harvard and then gets involved in sex and drugs and it totally ruins his career, which is an interesting thing to talk to Don Simpson about, right? Sure. And so they talk like five hours straight about this script. And at the end of the conversation, Don Simpson is like, I'm pretty sure I can get this movie greenlit by tomorrow at 5 p.m. Well, the problem is that the next day they come in. Don Simpson is dead. Less than two months after he and Bruckheimer part ways. And he was a fairly young guy, right? Yeah, 52 years old. Not an old guy at all, but lived hard. And with that happy note, next week we're coming in with Top Gun Maverick, the stories behind the making of the movie, and our take on how good it is. Come back next week as we dive into Top Gun Maverick. I can't wait to see this movie with you, D. It's going to be awesome. Be sure and hit the follow button on your podcast app so that you will get that episode as soon as it comes out. Check out our Patreon page. And if you are so inclined, please leave us a five-star review. And if you would like to put in a rating that says she's lost that loving feeling or you've entered the danger zone or any quote that would cost you $5 in the Navy, (laughs) we will enter you into a contest to win a special prize yet to be announced. Thanks, guys. We'll see you here next week. Hit the brakes. Fly right by. By the way, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Is there a worse name in the entire world than Dick Richards? <laughs>